0: Amen, amen. Happy Valentine's Day. Uh, if uh, if you don't know that it's Valentine's Day and you're a husband, uh, you're in trouble, okay? It's too, it's too late. Um, happy Valentine's Day. Hope you guys are doing well. Uh, now I found this out, that Valentine's Day is the day, more than any other day of the year, when the fire department is called. Do you know this? Oh yeah, because hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, right? And there's also a lot of lighting of candles on, uh, on Valentine's night, so that may be part of the problem as well, uh, but, but true story. And, and what's interesting is I wanna take a moment because Valentine's Day, some of you hear Valentine's Day and you go, oh, come on, a Hallmark holiday that you know, appeals to our consumeristic needs exactly okay you know the deal uh but, but but people feel differently right some people love it they love you know they want, love to watch romantic comedies they love to watch the notebook they they just love it it's kind of a special time and you better not forget it And you better take her out on you know a date uh then there's others who it's a very sad time right this is good to know about kind of all holidays and all kind of you know bigger events in people's lives is that they're both they can be both good and bad for some people it reminds them they're still single or they're single again and that's why i love the story you guys just heard Chad and Laura, let me just take a moment, because we've got a lot to cover tonight, but just let me take a moment for just a few minutes and talk about uh, two things that kind of came out of that story. The first is the idea of not settling. Did you hear her say that? You know, the temptation in our lives is to settle, right? I see this with women all the time, especially. As they get older, they say, I want a strong Christian man. Okay, no, I just want a Christian man. Okay, I need a man that believes in God. Okay, I need a man that will go to church with me and tolerate it. Okay, I need somebody who used to believe in God, right? It's like, it gets pretty low. Now, now, don't settle in that area. Now, now, this is good to know too. At one level, everybody has to settle, right? We all have often too high of expectations, Uh, just in general for chemistry and looks and personality and humor. Every once in a while, I'll talk to a guy and he's like, I'm looking for a 10. And I'm like, you're a six. (laughs) It's time to look for sixes. Um, But but there are two areas that we don't want to compromise in, okay? We don't want to compromise... Because we can't, you know, there are some areas we have to settle. Um, but there are two areas in which we should never settle. One is, is a person's uh, commitment to Christ, and the other person is, is their Christian conviction and mission in the world. This is why here we often talk about its master, Jesus Christ, its mission, what has God called us to, and then when you have the same master and also the same mission, then mate falls right in line. The second thing I want you to hear that she said is, is it's difficult to wait. I mean, that's, that's what she's getting, she was kind of telling the story. Hey, I was getting older and lonely on the couch and thinking about things. And two of the things that she said I think are so important. One is that we can't wait alone, right? This is why community is good, right? Community makes the bad times half as bad. The good times twice as good. And also, I love what she said. I turned to the word and especially to the Psalms. Now, this is really important because what the Psalms do, the whole Bible speaks to you, but the Psalms is the one book of the Bible that can speak for you. Because what's in the Psalms, I promise you, there's 150 Psalms, it's in the center of your Bible, it's the biggest book in the Bible. Uh, it, It expresses every emotional experience that humans can have. So wherever you are and whatever you're going through, it's a great place to go to. So let's just take a moment, let's go to Lord in prayer this Valentine's Day Sunday, and then we've got a lot to cover in Matthew chapter six. Would you pray with me? Lord, we pray for our church, we continue to, I said this for a long time, that a sign of health in any church are people getting married, having babies, having families, growing up together, Lord. And we we thank you for that, Lord. We also want to pray for many people. I pray for the single women in this room who long, and who are listening online, who long to get married. Lord, and I I pray for the men in this room that they would be strengthened, that they would be initiative, that they would, um, if they've got a certain lady on their their mind, that they would move toward her and begin to build a relationship with her. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can type to or turn to Matthew 6. We've got a lot to cover tonight, and here's what we're gonna do in Matthew chapter 6. So far, let me catch everyone up. We are in the greatest sermon ever given, not this one, uh, the uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, by the greatest preacher who ever preached Jesus Christ. And we're in chapter six, so you can find your way there. And, you know, the, the, the chapter divisions are slightly arbitrary. They're not in the original text, but they are helpful and they are there for a reason. And we are kind of in a time of transition in this book and in this kind of Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be in the sermon, by the way, for about three months. So we're about, you know, a third of the way through it. And, uh, and see in the first chapter, basically God says, uh, I want to do something in you and I want to do something through you. Right? So the whole the beatitudes, the blessed, blessed, blessed. That's the whole idea that that what the gospel does when it comes to you is it changes you. It makes you poor in spirit. It makes you mourn over your sin. It makes you want to be pure in heart. It makes you hunger and thirst for righteousness. It makes you want to be a merciful person. It changes you. And that's why right after that, it's, you're gonna be salt and light, right? And and as we're reemerging, and I know none of us know what it's gonna look like, but as we're reemerging on the other side of COVID, don't you wanna be the kind of person who's more outward focused and inward focused, right? I mean, everybody's kind of always thinking about themselves. Don't you wanna be the one person in your network of friends that isn't consumed with themselves so they can actually care and be concerned about other people? Well, that's how you be salt and light. You got to kind of be around people and care about them and bring the gospel to them. Well, then over the last three weeks, so we went from kind of hey, God wants to do something in you, and then God wants to do something through you, to Jesus talks about the law. And, And we talked about this, but he talks about lust, and we don't we don't think we committed adultery, but we do. And then he talks about you know murder and how it's really anger in our hearts. And and then last week we saw Caleb did a great job. Hey, it's not just about loving your enemies. Or sorry, loving your neighbor. It's also about loving your enemies. And he kind of, he deepens and develops, he expands and he enhances the law. Now, here's what happens in chapter six. Chapter six is so unique. I'm gonna give you the big idea for the sermon. I don't always do this, but I'm gonna give you the big idea for, for all of chapter six uh, so far, and especially for this first half. And here's the big idea. In chapter six, he's gonna move from the law of God, which is the 10 commandments, to religious activity. He's gonna talk about praying and giving and fasting and a couple other things. Today, we'll see uh, prayer, giving, and fasting. And here's the big idea for today, that you and I are so sinful and so selfish that it shows up even in how we try to be spiritual. That's the big idea. So you and I are so sinful and so broken and so self-centered that somehow we have the ability to make fasting about us. I don't know, that's how, that's how inward focused we are. Somehow we're able to make prayer about us Somehow we're able to make giving about us. And so he's gonna take these three ideas and show us how selfish we are. I think the moment when I realized, I mean, there's been a lot of moments, being married's helped, you know, to to realize how selfish I am. But but one of the early moments that I realized that I was incredibly selfish was when the Truman Show came out. And I watched the Truman Show and I genuinely had the thought, what if that's true for my life? I'm like, that is the most self-centered thought you could ever have. Maybe the whole, if you don't know what that show's about, the whole world revolves around him, Literally. It's like, man, what a selfish thought. So what I want us to do today is if you look at me at chapter six, verse one, we're gonna spend a lot of time on this opening verse. Jesus is going to warn us, right? And you know somebody loves you if they warn you. If somebody only says nice things to you, only affirms you, only encourages you, but never warns you, that person, just so you know, does not love you. Because love is a commitment to your good and love has a warning ministry. Part of what the church has, part of the mantle that I have is a warning ministry. I'm always warning you, do not do this. Do not believe that. There there is a fork in the road. There is a way that leads to life. There is a way that leads to death. And so Jesus comes with one of his favorite words that he uses often in his teaching. It's the word beware. Look at chapter six, verse one. Beware, right? Or be alert or watch out. Of practicing your righteousness. Now this is good to know. Righteousness, you know, you see the word righteousness. It's like, think, well, look at the root word, right. Like doing right things. And again, there was two types of righteousness. There was general morality. That's the 10 commandments. There was religious activities. Giving, praying, fasting. Here's what he says. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people, and then he gives a reason why, in order to be seen by them. Okay, well, that makes sense, okay. For then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. Now listen, a good Bible reader is a confused Bible reader. If you're, if you're good at reading your Bible, if you're like really reading it with pen and paper and like trying to understand all the ideas, you're going to be confused. And, and I really believe that it takes the whole Bible to make the whole Christian because here's, here's why I'm bringing this up. In chapter five, it seems like Jesus is saying the exact opposite of this. Do you remember in chapter five, Jesus goes, hey, here's what I want you to do. Shine your light before everybody so that they see your good deeds. It's like, wait, Jesus, didn't you? So you tell me in chapter five that I'm supposed to shine my light so that all my friends and all my family and all my coworkers see who I, that I love Christ. But then I, I turn the page. I don't even turn the page. Maybe it's on the same page. In the same sermon, by the same person, you're saying in the first verse of chapter six that I'm supposed to not practice my good deeds in front of other people? How does that work together? Well, the first one, when he says, shine your light, he's dealing with fear. And when he says, don't practice your righteousness, in other words, hide your righteous deeds before others, he's dealing with pride. Does that make sense? You you and I are a mingling and mixture of emotions. And so sometimes, here's the only safe rule. How does it work? Because he's saying sometimes you're gonna have to... expose things that you don't want to. And other times you're going to have to hide things that you want to share. And the only safe rule is this. When tempted to expose something, hide it. And when tempted to hide something, expose it. Isn't that interesting? And if, and if you do that, that's, and only you know that, right? Only you know what that feels like for you. But what he's, and now this is interesting because it's the exact opposite of what you and I do. What he's saying here is, is he says, here's what I want you to do. He says, I want you to hide your good deeds and expose your sin. That would be the clear teaching of scripture. This is why we talk about confession. This is why we talk about repentance. This is why we talk about authenticity and vulnerability and transparency, right? It's like, I wanna talk about my struggles and my weaknesses and my sins more than anybody so that everybody's aware that I know about them. That's what Jesus says we should do. That's exposing your sins and your weaknesses. And then he says, what you should do is hide your good deeds. What do we do? We do the exact opposite. We spend almost all of our time trying to hide our sin and expose our good deeds, right? And that's why some of us are so tired. I mean some of you you hide your sin from yourself you call it things that it isn't right you act like you don't struggle with it you try to forget about it immediately you rationalize why it's okay you try to hide your sin from yourself and we try to expose our good deeds like the one time when you've read the bible in the last month and made it on instagram right with like a hashtag it's like the one spiritual conversation you had you told everybody about it's like the one time you went to church you made sure everyone knew it's like it's like, what what is it about our hearts So here's what I want you to see. Let's go back again and read the verse, because it's important. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness, and we said what that is, before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who's in heaven. So a couple things. First, we're going to talk about three things. I keep repeating them. Giving, praying, fasting. They would be the three main religious activities of Jews of that day. Now, you read the list and you go, why isn't Bible reading on that? Because individual, personalized Bible reading is about 250 to 300 years old, that's it. Most people weren't literate. Uh, You know, we we haven't had the printing press for that long. Uh, And then a book was so expensive for you to actually have it in your language and be able to read it. Very, very few people, until about maybe even as little as 200 years ago, had access to that. So the idea, and I think it's a good thing. I mean, the idea of daily devotions, great. The idea of personal Bible reading, fantastic. It's a new idea. in in, in church history. And it's it's a great blessing and we thank God for it. And I encourage through the Bible in a year and daily reading. But you have to understand that what most people had was they had giving and they had fasting and prayer. And fasting and prayer was was the way that they took everything that they learned here. Because just so you know, I mean, again, it's always good to know, like, what did people do until like 150, 200 years ago? And what they did was meet all the time like this like Sunday morning and Sunday night and different sermons were were preached and Wednesday night was something else and Thursday was something else and and the reason they did that is that was the only way they had access to the Bible and then they would take that and then what they would do is primarily to get that in their heart and get that in their soul, they would pray about it, right? Because that's actually the one thing and we're gonna talk about this, like one of the things that will keep you from being a hypocrite is actually personally praying about things. That's That's actually what makes Christianity personal and so he's gonna give us these three disciplines. Now the discipline of giving is about our relationship with other people. And our discipline of prayer is about our relationship with God. And our discipline of fasting is about our relationship with ourselves. Isn't it amazing how holistic Christianity is? Now, he wants us to be God-centered in all of them, but they have different purposes. And and this is why we talk a lot here about the spiritual disciplines. The spiritual disciplines or what Christians called for a long time the means of grace. So spiritual disciplines, means of grace, they are the highways on which the Holy Spirit travels into our lives. I've never known a strong Christian who didn't spend time reading the Bible praying, memorizing, meditating scripture. There's a lot of other disciplines. You could add to that the spiritual discipline of journaling. You could add that the spiritual discipline of gathering together. You could add that the spiritual discipline of sharing your faith. There are many spiritual disciplines. And he's saying, I want you to be aware of practicing these disciplines in front of other people. And here's the phrase you're gonna see again and again and again. You're gonna see it three times. I'm kind of giving you an overview until we kind of go through the whole passage. You're gonna see the word hypocrisy three times. And hypocrisy, it's the word hypocrite, you know. And hypocrite was... um, it literally means one who wears masks. Not, not those type of masks you guys are wearing right now, okay? <laughs> different mask. Um, the, the one who wears masks, it was, it was the idea of, a, in a Greek plays, there would usually be one person often who would do a whole play. And he would come out and he would wear one mask like this and act a certain way and then go behind the stage and come out and wear a different mask and act a certain way and, and, and on and on and on. It's sometimes three, four, five masks. The interesting thing about the hypocrite is you never saw his or her real face. This is actually a very deep idea. Because what it says is when you're a hypocrite, nobody knows who you really are. And if you're, this is scary, and I've actually seen this happen. And if you're a hypocrite for long enough, you don't know who you are. Because, yeah, because, because right, a hypocrite is like you have multiple lives, right? It's like, well, there's your you know, church life now, and then there's your family life, which is slightly different than your church life, which is different than your work life, which is different than your online life. It's interesting how many people, If on, have you ever met someone you're like, you are completely different online uh, than you are in person. You're almost like two different people. Um, you know, um, there's some people who they have their church clothes and then they have their club clothes and they're not the same size. <laughs> club clothes are a little smaller. Um, and, and you actually know that you have multiple lives. This is actually a good litmus test because sometimes you like, we, we don't, it's like, how do you know if you might be, you know, be the opposite of integrity, right? Integrity is I have an integrated life. I'm one person. I'm the same person among every person in every place. The, the way that you would know that you would struggle with hypocrisy is you wouldn't want certain groups of people that you know to meet each other. So you're like, I don't know if I would want my community group to meet my classmates. Or I don't know if I'd want my coworkers to meet my community group. Or I don't know if I'd want my friends that I hang out with, I don't know if I want them to meet my parents. Right? And and sometimes you have to have a conversation with like one of the people in the group before they meet the other people. They don't know I drink. Or they don't know we have kids. Or they don't know I have an English accent. (laughs) Or whatever it is. You know, it's like, it's like there's something about you that one of the groups doesn't know and you're worried that this group's gonna tell this group something about you that that group doesn't know. And so hypocrisy is a big deal. And, and honestly, it is the number one critique the world has for the church. You know, and it's, it's heartbreaking because, you know, there's, and by the way, so part of the way that you fight against hypocrisy is you're just honest about your sins and you're honest about your struggles. But see, what's, and you're honest about the hypocrites that have been in the church and the, and the temptation for all of us to, to have some of hypocrisy. And for all of us that we're working in, in, in repentance is I'm noticing my hypocrisy. I'm open to it. I want people to confront me and let me know about it. I can't see myself by myself. That's why I need to be in community. And then I want to move forward. But you have things like, I mean, this week, I mean, I, just, I only talk about these things because they're public. But this week, all the news that came out about a guy named Ravi Zacharias, if you don't know who Ravi Zacharias is, it's like when he died in September of 2020, They say there was 2.3 billion impressions of his hashtag on Twitter. I would say that's a pretty influential person. He traveled the world, he was an evangelist and an apologist, in other words, he defended the faith. He was a great, I mean, I have met people who he has been a great encouragement to. It just came out that for at least a decade, he was having like sexual encounters with massage therapists from all over the world. And you're like I, I, you're like, I don't even understand. I don't even believe it. I, you, but it's true. And there's accounts and they got lawyers and they did independent research. And, and you have to understand that some people, that's all, I mean, it's on the front of CNN. I mean, this is like, and then before that, you know, it was Jerry Falwell Jr. It's like, oh, he just happened to be leading the largest Christian school in the nation, you know? And, and so some of you, you go, well, yeah, but he's not really on our team and he's not really in our tribe and he's not really, in, it's like, that's not how the world sees it. And then there's all these like things that we've been late to the table about you know, like Christians were very late to the pro-life movement. Uh, The Catholic church actually led the way and the Protestants followed. Christians have been late to the table to talk about important issues like slavery and civil rights and segregation. And so what Jesus is going to do is he's going to help us understand our tendency to be hypocrites and the cure for it. And he's going to, and he does it by talking about our motives. Now, the thing about motives is I don't, only you know your motives and Jesus knows your motives and, and probably sometimes you're confused about your own motives, right? You're never gonna have perfect motives. But what he's gonna say in here, and this is such, so interesting, this is why I love Jesus and I love the Bible so much and I believe that Christian faith is true, is the way that Jesus is able to di- dissect the human heart. So here's what he says. He says there's three reasons that you do what you do. This is important. Now, I'll show you this all in the text. This is a large intro out of verse one. Then we'll get into the text. Um, he says there's three reasons that you do what you do. You do what you do to please other people so they'll think you're great. And you know this if you've ever acted differently when somebody's with you, you know? Like, I, you know, I don't normally give to homeless people, but I will be tempted to give to a homeless person if I'm with somebody else. I don't know if you've ever experienced that. It's like, well, I kind of have this, there's a whole reason I don't give to homeless people, but like I don't have enough time to explain it to somebody and I'd, li- I'd rather that person think I'm the kind of person who gives to homeless people. It's like, what's wrong with my heart? Why am I doing something when somebody else is here and I'm not doing it when I'm by myself? So the first thing he says is the temptation is going to be for us to do things so that other people think that we're great. Now, is that more or less of a temptation with social media? The answer is more. Okay, (laughs) way more of a temptation. The second thing, this is even more fascinating. This is so insightful by Jesus. He's going to say there's a second reason that you do things. It's so that you'll think you're great. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's more godly than you and I will ever be and who prayed more than you and I will ever pray and who confronted Hitler and his regime and was a committed Christian uh, in Germany and wrote The Cost of Discipleship and multiple biographies have been written about him. He talks about how he got to the place where he would no longer tell people that he was praying and and nobody knew about his prayer life. And he would often go into a prayer room and do exactly what Jesus is gonna tell us in a few minutes and close the door and get on his knees and pray. And he said, but he realized that what he was really doing was watching himself pray. And though he told nobody, he said, what I did is I watched myself pray and I thought to myself, I am a great man. I am the type of man who prays and tells nobody. I bet there's very few people who do this so you can see the, 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 the human heart. It's like, well, what do we do, right? It's like, if we're not trying to impress ourselves or we're not trying to impress other people, the third thing, and, and this is why you're gonna see the word father again and again and again and again and again in this passage. And you're gonna see the idea of doing things in secret and, and having the father see and the father reward. The third thing is to say, actually, I'm gonna live for the audience of one it's not gonna be myself. It's not gonna be my spouse. It's not gonna be somebody else. It's going to ultimately be God and I'm going to live out of the forgiveness and the security and the salvation uh, that I have with him. I don't, I'm not doing anything I do to earn salvation. I'm only doing it to enjoy it. So with that said, I want you to start seeing these things in chapter six, verse two. Look, turn with me to chapter six, verse two. It says this. Thus, when you give, now this will be, new to us, but to some of us, Jesus assumes that every Christian is giving. Uh, in fact, when it comes to giving, when it comes to prayer, and when it comes to fasting, it's never if. It's never, hey, if you're on varsity you know, uh, Christianity, you do this. And if you're in JV Christianity, you don't. Here's what he says. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. So you can see he's basically saying there's the number one reason people give is so that other people will see them and think that they are great. He says this, truly I say to you, they have received the reward. And literally the Greek word for receive the reward is paid in full. There's nothing left for them once they've received that reward. So here's what he says. Um, First of all, a couple things I want us to notice here. Uh, Jesus talks about giving And you've heard this, and I've told you this before. Jesus talks about giving, money, possessions, uh, property more than he talks about sex or marriage or family or faith or heaven or hell, I think combined. Uh, Almost every uh, half of all of Jesus' parables have to do with this idea of stewardship and this idea of money, possessions, and property. And so what what he's saying here is he's going to talk about this idea of giving. Now, a couple things that are are interesting when you read the text. A, A lot of people don't understand that Jesus had a sense of humor, a lot of people think of Jesus as like, if you watch the old like Jesus films, they think of him as silent and serious and somber. Okay, but it's interesting. Jesus, uh, it, it's funny, to, I, I always enjoy reading commentaries on these things uh, during the week. I'm like, what, what do scholars say about this stuff? And they're like, this is interesting because nobody blew a trumpet before they dropped money in the, the plot. It's like, exactly, he's making fun of them. <laughs> this is actually what you have to do sometimes to religious people. You actually have to make fun of them in the most gospel-centered, Christ-centered, spirit-filled, grace-oriented way so that they will see how silly and ridiculous what they do is. I mean, could you imagine somebody and then dropping money into a vase? Now, now here's, what, here's what did happen. What, what happened, what Jesus is referring to is there were these funnels, these copper funnels. And back then, they didn't have folding money. They just had coin money. And so what would happen is, uh, at the, usually at the back of the worship center, There would be these big funnels and people would come at the very beginning or the very end of the worship service and they would pour all their coins in that they were giving that week. And the louder the sound and the longer the sound, we knew that that person gave more money. This is the first GoFundMe page in scripture. Now, I'm not against GoFundMe pages, but they are interesting, aren't they? It's like, what is it about us that we, hey, look, I give to this, you should give to this. And then you look, it's like, you gave $4. $4 but you are the type of person who wants to be identified with being generous. If you wanna do something, Jesus said, if you wanna do something against your flesh, what you should do is give, be the anonymous person who gives a large gift and tells nobody. It's, now, now it's like, well, why do we give to impress other people? It's like, well, again, we don't know people's motives. There's a, it's complex. I'll give you a story to, to kind of share this. I knew a very, 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 very wealthy person in, in Pittsburgh. And uh, he was getting old, he's dead now. And uh, he believed in this verse. And so he always wanted to give his money secretly. And he never, he gave, I mean, millions and millions of dollars away. And, uh, but he never wanted his names on these buildings and stuff like that because of this, right? Because think about it, how do we motivate people usually? We normally motivate people by like, hey, come to this banquet and you'll get a good table and you'll be in the you know, platinum club or the silver club or the great, you know, and, uh, and then we'll, you know, everyone will know how much you gave. We'll put your name on a building. I mean, that's, that's how college campuses get built. It's like, would you like your name on that building? It's just gonna cost you $25 million. Um, and so, so what's interesting is, is why this is, is made me sympathetic to people who do put their names on buildings is because they came to him and they said, hey, we really, we know you're a godly man. Um, and you, we know you're actually giving this money whether or not you put, put your name on the building. But would you please put your name on the building because you are a man that others respect. And if they see you making this type of investment, it will encourage other people with your wealth to invest. So at the very end of his life, he decided to name several things to encourage more people, and it ended up being very beneficial in the city of Pittsburgh for generosity. So it's like, I tell you that story just to say it's complex. Somebody can have a GoFundMe page, and it can be great motivations. Somebody can have a GoFundMe page, and it's totally about themselves. I want you to see what Jesus says instead. If you look at verses 3 and 4, he tells us how we should give. He says this, But when you give, again, assuming that every Christian's going to give, it's interesting, only 10% of Christians tithe uh, historically, globally right now. Um, And it's interesting, the average Christian only gives 2.5% of their income to the church, whereas during the Great Depression, it was 3.3%. So uh, the average Christian gives 1% less than Christians gave during the Great Depression, so this is all, I think maybe this is why Jesus was like, hey, I gotta talk about money because it's just something we gotta keep hearing about. He says this, when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand, that was just your, you know, 90% of people are right-handed. So it's like your, your right hand's your dominant hand. So he says there, he says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So he's saying, basically we, got, we wanna give in a way that in some ways, we give so that others don't see. In some ways, we give that we don't see. What does that mean? It's like in some ways, we give and then we forget about it. I mean, we're grateful to do it. We don't, we don't dwell on, last year, I gave you know, this much money away. I can't believe, you know, how great am I? It's like we, we do it, and we move on. And here's the interesting thing about giving. Giving does a couple things. The first thing that giving does is giving invites God into your finances, And that's really interesting, because again, doing this for 15 years, I don't know anybody who doesn't get to a point where at some point in their life, they want God invested in their finances. It's usually a little late, and God's gracious, but it's usually, hey, I I, I wasn't real wise. I'm in consumer debt, or we got lots of medical bills, or I haven't been been stewarding things right, and now I'm inviting you into my finances. Well, when you're generous, you invite God into your finances early and often. The second thing that happens... um, when you, when you are generous, quietly, secretly before the Lord, the reward for being generous is being generous. The reward for, so think about it this way. What is the reward for giving to hold the rope? Just thinking of something we all did. The, what is the reward to giving to hold the rope? The answer biblically is giving to hold the rope. That's the reward. There, I'm so passionate and I'm so excited about the mission of God that I'm not giving so that people know that I gave X amount of money, but I'm actually giving because I care about that local, national, global mission and I wanna be a part of it. I, I've seen this over the years. I remember, I, was, I remember where I was, I was pumping gas and I got a phone call and, and I pick up the phone. It's a number I don't, you know, didn't recognize and I don't normally answer numbers I don't recognize, but I answered it. And on the other end was a Wake Forest dad, a parent of a, of a son. This was, this was multiple years ago during uh, our Deep and Wide initiative. We were trying to raise some money to get in this building. And we were, we were a smaller church back then. We didn't know how much money we were gonna come in. And this guy calls me and he says, I'm so-and-so. And I'm, he said, and, and so-and-so is my son. And he says, uh, my son loves your church. And his friends love the church. And they're growing so much that my wife and I have been talking about it. And we wanted to give to hold the rope. We've been listening and we want to give to hold the rope. Um, And we wanted to give something significant. We prayed about it. We'd like to give $10,000 to hold the rope. And I just remember just being overwhelmed. I think at the time it was the largest gift that we had received from somebody who lived in a different state, who was never, no one was ever gonna know he gave it except for me. And he gave it so that because he believed in what was happening here, that's why people give to things. And it's interesting, Jesus says give to the needy. Now, this is the idea of giving to the poor. And what happens is when you become a Christian, one of the things that happens is you have a heart for the poor. You know, most of you are not poor financially. You've never been poor financially you couldn't even imagine what it would be like to be poor financially. Your kids won't be poor financially. You will never experience poverty at any level financially. But that's okay. Because what every Christian can say is, what you are physically, I have been spiritually. And so therefore, I have a huge care for, for the poor. Now, how do we help the poor? Because he says, give to the needy. How do we help the poor? It's like, well, that's really hard, right? I mean, we could debate and discuss that. This, Jesus says things like, the poor will always be among you. What does that mean? I mean, that's a, well, that's a whole other sermon, but the poor will always be among you. So, so what happens is, you know, you think about somebody who's in our city and they're poor and they're also addicted to something and you're also not sure if they're lying to you and, and it's like, and, and you want to help them? It's like, I'm not trying to relieve anybody of duty because you, maybe you should help them, but the chance that you try to help an addicted homeless person and you make it better is almost 0%. The chance that you will make the situation worse and they will take advantage of you is almost 100%. And, and so what, what, what do we do with that? One of the reasons that we give away 11% of our budget to local, national, and global needs and mission is what we do is we partner with organizations because situations are overwhelming. Situations are confusing. But there's organizations like Samaritan's Purse, which says, well, we've been dealing with addicted, homeless people for 50 years. And we know the processes and pipelines and ways to help them. And we, we have a holistic gospel-centered approach. So this is one of the principles that Jesus teaches is that often, it's not that you just give to the church, you actually oftentimes will give through the church. And when you give to the church, you give through the church to a bunch of other ministries that partner with organizations to help. So the first thing Jesus says is, when we do that though, our giving should be in secret and it should be in front of the face of God. Secondly, he talks about prayer. If you look at me at prayer, here's what he says. Uh, And I'm not gonna talk a lot about prayer tonight because we're gonna come back in a few weeks and deal with prayer more extensively and and look at the... um, Look at the Lord's Prayer. We're gonna skip the Lord's Prayer tonight, um, but we're gonna come back to it in a few weeks. Look at verse five. He says, when you pray, so not if you pray, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. There's that word again. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, second time that's repeated, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you third time. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Do you notice that he first says hypocrites, then he says Gentiles. He's actually going to talk about two different wrong wrong ways of praying. And we'll get into this. Um, He says, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father, again, back to father, back to God as dad. For your father knows what you need before you ask. So, Jesus assumes Christians will pray, right? I, I believe that, that prayerlessness is, is probably the most subtle form of pride in our lives. But prayer is also an area we could be really, really convicted over. Like if I were to ask you, okay, if God, I mean, here's an interesting kind of question to ask yourself. If God answered every one of your prayers that you prayed this last week, what would change? It's, like a really, it's kind of a convicting question because it's like, well, maybe Nothing. Or maybe you would just have more stuff or something, or your life would be easier. Maybe that's what would happen. But, but um, So he's kind of saying this, okay, so we, we're supposed to pray. But then he, he says there's two wrong ways to pray. And I think these are, these are great for us to know. The first way he says it's wrong to pray is the type of praying that's, that you know you're doing religious praying, which is that first idea of the hypocrites. He says you know you're, you know you're doing religious praying if you only pray with other people or you only pray in front of other people, right? I mean, a good litmus test for your prayer life is you should be praying more personally than you are with other people. If, if the only time you pray, which is probably a lot of us, is the only time you pray is, well, we pray for a little bit for dinner, and we pray for a little bit for lunch, and we pray a little bit at our community group, and, and if I go to the hospital and someone's sick, and then we're all there, we'll pray together for that, and if there's a need, I'll come together and we'll pray, and if someone's, you know, I'll call a friend and pray for them, but if we have no personal, private prayer life, that's a big, that's a big warning. It's like, is, is our faith our own. Are we real Christians when we're all alone? So the first thing he says is um, that religious prayer tends to be people-centered and pray in front of others. And then he says, uh, secondly, that it's mechanical. That there's, there, there, you, If you look at the, um, uh, what he says about the Gentiles, is they go, they say empty phrases. They just say the same thing again and again and again. Uh, we, this could be something as simple as like, Father God, Father God, Father God, Father God, Father God, Father God, Father God. Have you ever prayed with somebody who says it the whole time? Um, they, you know, it's just like, there's, there's not, they're not actually thinking about what they're saying. No, nobody would come up to me and say, Pastor Kyle, Pastor Kyle, Pastor Kyle, Pastor you Kyle. Know, no, no one would say that. That would be somebody who's not thinking correctly. That would be somebody who's going into a motion of something and not really trying to have a conversation with me. Um, and, and and really what happens is you got to get, okay. So then, and then in religious circles, it's a lot of memorized prayers. So I grew up Catholic. So it was like, memorize the Lord's prayer and memorize the Hail Mary. And I mean, to this day, I still have all those prayers memorized. There's a prayer that Catholic, if you've not, some of you, many of you, most of you haven't grown up Catholic. So when you're Catholic, they give you this prayer to pray over dinner, bless us, O Lord, in these thy gifts, which we are about to receive from thy bounty through Christ, our Lord. Amen. I still don't know what that means. I mean, I know what part of it means. I don't. I don't think the. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure some Catholics know what that means. I don't think most Catholics know what that means, but I think almost every Catholic knows it. And Jesus' answer to that is okay. Instead, he, his whole, whole thing—it's so simple. He's like, pray to your father. And, and this is this is a lot of times what makes the lights come on, especially for men who like feel like is prayer feminine is like prayer weird is what am I doing? I feel weird when I pray. Here's what prayer is: prayer is talking to your dad. It's like, prayer is like going on a long walk with your dad and pouring out your heart and confessing your sin. And what is the reward of prayer? The reward of prayer is intimacy with God. That's the reward of it. My favorite story that kind of shows this and shows the importance of personal private prayer is a story I heard a pastor tell who was, uh, he, was he was leading a team in Africa. He said, I was leading this team in Africa and I was pulling all these pastors together at this hotel in Africa. And he said, it was like a three or four day conference to encourage African pastors in Africa. And, uh, and he said they would have fun, and there was teaching, and there was preaching, and there was worship, and there was seminars. And then he said, you know, they were at a hotel, and everyone would go back to their hotel at night. He said after the second day they were there, the hotel manager came up to them, to the head guy at the, at the retreat, and said, hey, can you get the guys to quiet down at night? And he thought, oh, okay, well, I don't know what they're doing, but, you know, are they in the pool too late? Are they laughing too much? And, and so he got some more information, and he found out that what, what this uh, lady was saying at the hotel, what they were complaining about, was that the men were crying out in their rooms at night in loud voices that the rest of the people at the hotel could hear. What these men were doing is they were having personal, private prayer with God that was emotional and intense, so much so that the other hotel rooms could hear it. What a picture of prayer. The the reason here we talk about scripture-fed, spirit-led, worship-based prayer that's our phrase. Scripture-fed, spirit-led, worship-based prayer is in response to a passage like this where it says scripture-fed will help you from just saying empty things and spirit-led will help you from being overly mechanical and worship-based will help you to seek God's face before you seek his, anything from him, seek his heart before you seek his hands. Which leads to the last and maybe most interesting thing Jesus says, uh, which is about fasting. If you'll look here, fasting, verse 16. We'll drop down to verse 16. We'll come back and cover um, <clears throat> Uh, the Lord's Prayer, but for now, look at verse 16. He says this, and when you fast, again, I just have to say that three times in a row, it's gonna be when you fast, when you pray, when you give. When you fast, and and when I say fast, some of you go, oh, this is great, I could lose a few pounds. That's not this type of fasting, okay? This is not health fasting. This is fasting for spiritual reasons. I'll explain this. He says this, when you fast, do not look uh, gloomy like the hypocrites, for, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who's in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. So in, in the Old Testament, there was one day a year that everybody was required to fast. It was the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Uh, now, in the Bible, there was also many feasts. Are there more feasts than fast? Yes, yes. So the Bible teaches moderation in all things with occasional feasts and fasting, but more feasting than fasting. Um, now, when we talk about fasting, I mean, this is something that I, I think has been completely lost, as far as I'm concerned, for many relationships I know, uh, has been completely lost in the American church, right? We're all into like the cool intermittent fasting, right? Where we don't eat for 16 hours and it helps our digestive system and it works with our workout routines. And again, what have we done? We've taken fasting, we've made it all about of not that interesting? Um, and not against intermittent fasting, but this is a different type of fasting. Here's what fasting is. Fasting is I give up something in creation to focus on the creator. Fa- fasting is we don't have almost anything like the same work because most of us are not very serious about our faith, but, but, but uh, fasting is I'm going to do something dramatic and physical to show you how serious I am spiritually. And the word fast literally means um, to abstain from food. That's what it means. It literally means to abstain from food. Now, Jesus fasted for 40 days. John the Baptist disciples fasted. The Pharisees fasted twice a week. John Wesley, another hero of mine, uh, you know, he had this horseback riding team that built this movement that became the Methodist church. And, uh, and he was recruiting young men from all over to be preachers and get on these horses and go all over the United States preaching. And one of the requirements to join John Wesley's horseback riding team was to fast twice a week. I mean, I mean, what excuses do we have, right? It's like these guys were riding around preaching all day, no air conditioning, on horses, out in the elements, fasting twice a week. And, and there's a couple of reasons. I want to talk about why do we fast? And I don't have a ton of experience with fasting, but I worked for an organization for five years that asked us to fast once a month. We took a, what was called a dope, a day of prayer and evaluation. So I do have some experience with this. And, and what happens when you fast? And some of you have never done this. But what happens when you fast is you begin to realize how empty you are inside. I mean, it really it, it's usually right about lunchtime and you're like, well, it's the, I probably don't need to fast anymore. You know, <laughs> It's like, oh, I'll probably do this next week. It's at the same time you're trying to get out of fast and tell yourself you've done it long enough and you don't need to do it any longer, but you'll begin to feel so empty inside. And you realize that what we've done is we just, we've taken all these carbs and all these calories and we've just covered up everything that's wrong with us. right? This is why like, you could have a terrible day and you're like, well, it's pizza tonight, You can fight with your spouse, and you're thinking during the fight, "There's ice cream in the fridge." Um, I mean, you you know, you could have a terrible day at work, and you think, "Well, I'll just order whatever I want from Uber Eats tonight, and it'll be fine." DoorDash for tonight. And when you don't have that, what happens? is, So so the idea, and I get it, the idea of being hangry. Okay, what what does that tell us? Well, what it tells you, you, whoever that is, or us, whoever that is, because not everybody gets hangry. So why do some people get hangry, and other people don't get hangry? Because some people are angry. They're angry people, and, all, and not eating food reveals that. And sometimes we don't even know what's going on in our heart until we abstain from food. This is, why most, this is why, unless you have major medical issues and reasons why, I would highly encourage you that when you fast, you need to abstain from food. A lot of times you'll talk to somebody about abstaining from food and fasting, and I've seen this over the years, and they'll say, well, that's not really my issue. I probably should fast social media. I'm like, if you're trying to get out of fasting food, it's definitely your issue. If you're willing to give up something else instead of it, it's definitely your issue. And so what happens, and I don't, I don't fully understand this, but it, it, it's our way to say to God, I'm very serious about this, and I would like to practice self-discipline. I'd like to practice self-control. I'd like to practice self-denial, and I'd like to practice sacrifice. It, you, you, there's many reasons that you would wanna fast. Fasting is an accelerator. Fasting is your way to say, God, I really, I really wanna hear from you. When if somebody says, should I marry her or not? My response is fast. Should I take this job or not? My response is fast. Should I move my family somewhere else? Fast. Should I buy this expensive house? Fast. It's your way to say, God, I'm really serious and I really wanna hear from you. And I may just take one day, and I, but I just wanna hear from you. Do you understand in Acts chapter 13 that the first church planning movement of the church was started after a Fast. Are you struggling with a major sin in your life? Remember, there's this time where there was this demonic possession and the disciples couldn't handle it and then they bring it to Jesus and Jesus handles the demonic possessed guy and they say, why couldn't we do it? And he says, there are some things that only can come out by prayer and fasting. So fasting is our way to say that we're serious. Now, now a couple of real practicals on fasting. When you fast, put it on your calendar, tell somebody and don't change the date no matter what. Because you're gonna wanna, you'll just, you'll see your own flesh. You'll try to get out of it. You'll try, and and I would start, I would start with just two meals. Just do breakfast and lunch. Just fast breakfast and lunch and don't eat dinner at 2 p.m. though, okay? Uh, (laughs) Fast breakfast and lunch and allow that experience to be really great. Second, you need a plan if you're gonna fast, and I encourage you to try this this week or this month. If you're gonna fast, uh, another recommendation would be know what you're going to do when you're not eating. See, one of the first things you'll realize when you fast is you'll realize how much time you spend thinking about food. Making food, eating food, snacking, cleaning up. I mean, it wouldn't be, for the average person, it might be two to four hours that you get back in your day when you abstain from food. Um, Thirdly, you know, um, have the right expectations for fasting. A lot of people think that when they fast, they're going to have this incredibly emotionally and spiritually exhilarating um, experience. I will tell you because I've done this a decent amount. I will tell you exactly how you'll feel when you fast. You'll be hungry and you'll have a headache. <laughs> and, you know, and the more you do it, the less you'll kind of get used to it. And you know, but if you do a longer fast, what happens on a longer fast? Just side note here is that what they tell you on long fast is after you get three to five days, your hunger pains go away. Um, and the easiest time to fast is actually after like day five. But when your hunger pains come back, you have to eat because that's your body beginning to actually. I don't know how that works, but. Do something where it's telling you, like, it's time to eat. Um, um, but, but it's amazing because you realize a guy like Bill Bright, who's one of my heroes, if you don't know who Bill Bright is, he started Campus Crusade for Christ, now known as Crew. You know, for a long time in his ministry, I think over a decade, he did a yearly 40-day fast. I mean, so don't read this and go, this is interesting what they did in Bible times. No, no this guy did a 40-day fast. And if I were to, if I were to ask, you know, How many people in this room have been impacted by Campus Crusade for Christ, their parents or their grandparents? It would be amazing. And people go, why did he have such power? Why was Bill Bright so used by God? It was was his way. He would do it right before really big events and really big initiatives. I, I didn't tell the story in the early services. It's kind of a small story here. But I remember there was one of my mentors I deeply respected, and he was putting on this massive college event. And I, then I realized through multiple circumstances and events that he'd been fasting that week for that event. Didn't tell anybody. Just, Lord, I want you to do something. I want to, be over, I want to be overly sensitive. The amazing thing is Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't already done. Jesus Christ is the greatest giver, right? <laughs> he, gave, he didn't tithe his blood. He gave all of it. Jesus Christ, not only that, Jesus Christ is the great example of praying. If Jesus Christ, who was the sinless son of God needed to make time to get away and pray, how much more do we need to do that? And not only that, Jesus Christ says that he is now interceding for us in heaven. And Jesus Christ, when we think about, you know, his ministry started, if you wanna look back in the gospels, Jesus' ministry started with a 40-day fast. It was a 40-day fast that he then went and faced the major three temptations where Israel had failed in the wilderness and he obeyed for us. And so how do we do this? We have to, the, the key in Matthew 6, and I'd encourage you to read over this week, the key in Matthew 6 is to see God as a father who loves you, who sent his son to die for you, who you are safe and secure in his love. You live out of that. It reminds me that a couple weeks ago, I had, the, I, was, I had the opportunity, I'll close with this. I had the opportunity to see the new Tiger Woods documentary. And it's, it's, kinda, it's really sad. It's like watching Hamilton. Act one is like amazing, and act two is you know, really sad and terrible and everything falls apart. Um, but it's a really moving story, and I didn't realize this about the life of Tiger Woods, but just how much his dad loved him and had an influence on him. And both, it's a two-part documentary series, and in part one and in part two, well, the series begins and the series ends with this old recording of Earl Woods, Tiger's father, And it was right, it's a recording from the very beginning of Tiger's career. And Earl Woods gets on in this, and I know he wasn't a perfect father, but he gets on and he says, you'll have to excuse me. He says, I get very emotional when I talk about my son. And he goes on, he talks about Tiger Woods. And what you realize in the documentary is that Tiger Woods, his whole life, not a perfect guy by any means, But what drove Tiger Woods was his dad's love and belief in him. Do you know, I wouldn't have known this except for the documentary, do you know that Tiger Woods thought about leaving golf and going into the army when his dad died? It's like, why did he do that? It's like, well, the reason he did it is his dad was in the army. He didn't know what to do. And the whole idea behind that idea is that we have a father in heaven who says, I think, in the same way to, to the Christians, you'll have to excuse me. I get a little emotional when I talk about my kids. And when you live from that idea that God loves me, God is satisfied in me, I don't have to work from salva- or for my salvation, I work from it. That Christianity is the only religion in the world where the verdict comes before the performance. And because we have the verdict, not guilty, forgiven, we can now have the performance as sons and daughters. Let's pray. Lord, we just we just pray for these things. Lord, we don't want to be hypocrites. Lord, help us to see ourselves. We can't do that by ourselves. Help us to be in community. Help us to be quick to repent. Help us to quick to be quick to sometimes say, "Hey, sorry, I did that to be seen. Sorry, that was really selfish. My bad." Lord, help us to just be the kind of people that are aware that when we're doing things for other people and just because of other people. Help us to be aware when we're doing things just so we think we're great. Lord, help us to be the type of Christians that do things in secret whether it's our prayer or our Bible reading, our evangelism, our giving and our generosity, Lord. Lord, grow us as a church in fasting, Lord. Let it be one of the ways that as a church and individually as families and as Christians, we say to you, Lord, just silently and secretly, we're serious. We're serious about dealing with this sin. We're serious about fighting temptation. We're serious about wanting you to do something in us and do something through us. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.